All right, if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 20. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Citizenship in heaven. Uh, we're, we're starting a, uh, a series today that I'm both excited and super nervous about on how we talk about politics. Apparently there's something big right around the corner that's coming up. And as we get ready to talk about this as a church, I feel like it's important to talk about this. Uh, I go into my office on Tuesday morning, and there is a letter. It's a card that's on my desk. And I'm excited because, you know, I've been, you know, in this time of, like, being separated, like, people are kind of, like, writing letters again. So it's, you know, you get these letters of encouragement, and it's always, you know, really, really nice and life-giving. And I open this card, and it says, Pastor Jared. And the first line essentially says, like, how dare you? So I'm like, oh, like, what did I do? You know, I start, and I start reading through it, and it's, it's one of those, like, it was handwritten. And you know, like, the kind of handwriting that when you, you're reading it, you could tell, you can hear it. It's like angry handwriting. Like, uh, there was passion that was behind it. And as I'm reading through this, it, it basically is, how dare you, as a pastor with your church building, invite the president to come to your church building here in Phoenix and have a rally? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I don't have a church building. <laughs> like, what is going on here? And, and then I started thinking, like, oh, okay, I, I realize what's happening. She thinks I'm someone else. And I start to read through this letter, and it's like two pages long, full of all of this like passion and anger about a church using its building for you know political purpose. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, goodness gracious! And I get I get to the end of it, and there's there's all these pages behind it that are like um, basically like screenshots of like. Uh, a certain Twitter account that, that's out there by our president, and like all these different things that are that he's he has said, and so like I, I'm like you know experiencing kind of like the weight and anger of this, and I'm like you've got the wrong guy, like I didn't do this right, and at first I was just gonna like you know throw you know throw it away, and I started thinking about it, and I'm like well this person spent a lot of time on this and had some interesting points about the role of church and politics, and so. Uh, here's what I'll do. I, I ended up kind of putting it back into an envelope, and I may have addressed it to the other church and put a stamp on it. And I sent it back to her, this person, and I just said, "Hey, you, you know, I'm sorry for the, the uh, misunderstanding. Um, this is, you know, this is someone else. Uh, it seems like you're really passionate about this. So why don't you pray about it? And then if you feel like you want to continue to forward it on, you know, well, I can't stop you. So you know, go ahead and." Um, I told Marcy that, and she's, like, horrified. Like, she's like, why? I can't believe you would do that, and you get involved in the middle of it. And I thought it was funny. Um, we'll see what happens. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But, but I was thinking, like, starting a series on politics, the beginning of the week, I get this letter that is just, like, full of anger. And one of the things I think it revealed to me and reminded me of is, you know, we're, we're living in just this tense pressure point in our country's uh, history and in our culture, and everyone's kind of on edge. Um, and so, like, you, you've probably had conversations about politics that have turned to anger, or you've probably had a conversation that you've had to close down with, like, friends and family because you're afraid of it turning to anger. And it, it seems like there's, there's so much passion 
Um, there's so much energy that's going towards it. And it's like, uh, how do we talk about this in ways that are civil? And so my hope with this series is to kind of give us a language, a gospel language to have these conversations that are so important to have that we just have such a hard time talking about. Um, the second thing that this letter reminded me is that as I bring this in front of us as a community, um, I might get angry letters. And if you feel like you need to send me an angry letter, that's okay. You can do that. Um, you'll probably become a sermon illustration someday, but you can definitely send me an angry letter. Um, but uh, here, here's kind of uh, the, the gist of today. Here, here's kind of the, the, my, what I'm trying to communicate today um, is that to follow Jesus is to be political. To follow Jesus is to be political. Not necessarily partisan. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But if you are following Jesus, you, you are a political person. And what I mean by that is if you look even back to the early church and their interaction with the culture around them, the, the early church, when Jesus came to earth, it was a very tense political situation. And uh, if you know your history, you have the Roman Empire, right? This, this empire that's expanding, uh, right, kind of when Jesus comes onto the scene. It goes from a democracy onto, like, this all sorts of strife happens, gets destabilized. This man named Julius Caesar consolidates power and becomes the first emperor. Um, people don't like how powerful he's getting, so, like, senators, some of the leaders take him out. Like, on the Ides of March, you know, the whole famous E2 Brute, he gets uh, killed, and after he dies, uh, there's a civil war that starts. It's kind of like a civil war, how he gets power. And then after he dies, it leaves this kind of like leadership vacuum. And, and you have uh, his, his adopted son named Octavian uh, on one side. And then you have one of his old friends that became enemies, Mark Antony. And I think Elizabeth Taylor is involved at some point. And they have the civil war, and Octavian wins. And Octavian uh, becomes kind of like the next emperor. And because he was... Uh, the, the adopted son of Caesar, of Julius Caesar, people kind of attributed these divine qualities to Julius Caesar for him to be that powerful, to rise to the way that he did. They, they attribute this divine quality to him. And so when his son, adopted son, takes over, here's kind of the title they gave to Octavian. He became Imperate, Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. Divi Filius Augustus. Sorry, I don't speak Latin. Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. This idea of Divi Filius means divine son. And when Jesus is born into the world, this is the, the guy that's in control of the Roman Empire's title. He's this divine son of Julius Caesar. He's Caesar Augustus. He had incredible power uh, and, and became one of the most powerful men, really, history has ever seen. And all sorts of things were, were said about him. There's a, a book called Christ and the Caesars by Ethelbert Stafford, that found this uh, inscription about Augustus, and it says this. It says, salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Does that sound familiar? There's this story in Acts when the new church, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, is starting to grow, and uh, Peter and John, um, they, they do this thing where they heal this, this person, and it kind of like creates like a stir. And so like the, the Sanhedrin comes and they have to stand before them and explain what happens. And the story in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, they're kind of standing trial. And they're saying, what, what did you do? What happened? And it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called, if I, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, 
Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he goes on to quote Hebrew scripture. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on to quote this little political slogan, and he says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So Peter quotes kind of their sacred scripture, and then he takes this political slogan, and he says, this is where salvation is found. And if you're hearing this, and you know that there's this Caesar Augustus who claims to be this divine, you know, son of the divine, who salvation is only found in him, what you're realizing is that Peter is making a statement here that's not just theological, it's political. And in fact, right after he says that, it says they saw the courage of Peter and John, because did you hear what Peter just said? He just took this political slogan, and he's saying, no, salvation is actually found in Jesus. Jesus. Then in Acts chapter 17, we're actually going to look at this story next week. There's, uh, when, when the church in Philippi gets founded, um, just a wild story um, that takes place. Paul's there with some of his buddies. They ended up uh, um, freeing the slave girl, and it causes like quite a commotion and riot, and they end up getting arrested. And it says in verses 6 and 7, it says, These men, they're being accused, have caused trouble all over the world and have come, uh, now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into the house. Um, Jason, he's running in the back right now. This would be something you would probably do too, a very hospitable person. Uh, Jason welcomes them into the house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So Philippi is this Roman colony, and the accusation against Paul is that he's claiming salvation is found somewhere else. Somebody else is in control. And it's not just a theological statement. It is this political statement. Um, the, the cult of Caesar is spreading kind of like all over the world when uh, the, the early church is, is growing. And the Romans didn't necessarily say you have to like abandon your gods, but you have to acknowledge this, 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 this allegiance to Caesar, Augustus Caesar as this divine being. So they had this phrase saying, Caesar is Lord. That was kind of like their, their political slogan. Caesar is, is Lord. He's in charge of it all. And the early church said, no, he's not. No, he's not. And so when we hear the word Jesus is Lord in Scripture, like we just kind of hear it and like, yeah, this is a great statement. For the early church, that meant something. That meant an allegiance, a a, a political allegiance where they're saying this thing that they're saying about Caesar isn't true. What it is true is about is about Jesus. In fact, um, a couple months ago, I was reading some like church history for this other sermon I was preparing, and I came across this man, Bishop Polycarp, who lived kind of like in the late uh, first century, and he was martyred for his faith. Um, and as I was reading about Polycarp, I, I came across kind of his trial. And this little sentence I just read over real quickly, it says this. It said that the, the Christians were, were never, or it says that the captain of the police, so Polycarp gets arrested. The captain of the police uh, pleaded with the aged bishop Polycarp to renounce this extreme position. And he says, what harm is there in saying that Caesar is Lord? But Polycarp refused and was burned at the stake. And then I just kept reading. I was like, wait, 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 what did that just say? What did that just say? Like, it just, like, throws it out. There's this little detail. He refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, and he was burned at the stake. 
And I think that's important because in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, Paul is writing to the church community that's in Rome, right? The belly of the beast. And it's this dynamic church that's gathered. And he has these, uh, these words for the church in Rome. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we look at that as a part of a doctrine, like, you know, Romans Road. Like, this is, this is this thing that we acknowledge that brings about salvation. But when you start to think about the context that this was written in, this isn't just something you say and acknowledge. Paul is saying, because when you say Jesus is Lord, what you are acknowledging is that Caesar isn't. This is a loaded, powerful statement, and it reveals something in your heart that you have surrendered fully to Jesus. It's not just something you say as a transaction. This is something you have to say knowing what the consequences are. And Paul puts this in his letter, an open letter, a public letter, and gives it to the Church of Rome. Can you imagine if you're you're reading this like in a community of people in Rome, and maybe you have, you know, the church is starting to grow, and there's some like, you know, Roman legionaries that are a part of this community, and you say, here's where salvation comes. This, This surrender where you're acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. And this is what I I, I want to to shape our entire conversation about politics with this. Our allegiance and our hope is in the fact that Jesus is Lord. Salvation is found in him. He is sovereign. He's in control. Uh, Everything that we do, we're citizens of heaven, goes first and foremost through the fact that Jesus is Lord. And here's what happens is when our hope is in that, we can engage politically when we have misplaced our hope in who is Lord, it always will lead to despair. But Jesus is Lord. We want to turn our attention and our allegiance back to him to say he is the one who is in control. Jesus is Lord. Uh, as I have kind of considered just all these different conversations that, that seem to be heated and confusing, um, we, we have a group of pastors uh, called the Surge Network in North Phoenix that get together and um, just like you, you, you get to, to visit with all these other pastors from North Phoenix when I go to these groups and hear about kind of like what they're hearing from their churches and how can we best like love our neighbors and, and love Jesus in this community. And, and to be honest, there's a lot of just anxiety and nervousness as we enter into this uh, election season because 2016 was crazy. And, and to be a leader and a pastor, um, it's just wild, and most of us pastors are people pleasers, and we just want everyone to be happy, and, and no one's happy <laughs> in election season. And so we kind of are all coming, we had like a prayer meeting where we're all kind of just coming and kind of talking about how do we prepare our people to have just a language to discuss this. And, and I think one of the things that we're, we're realizing is that these, these, these political tribes that we travel in, um, and they're important to be in, are starting to almost operate as these religious identities, and there was a man named Jim Mullins. He's a pastor out in Tempe at Redemption Tempe um, that came, and he had um, just the language to communicate what he thinks is happening. And then Chris Gonzalez from Missio Day came, and, and they just they brought um, about uh, something that I think helps us kind of identify the conversations that are happening and how to have these conversations and where maybe hope is being misplaced and what's leading to despair. And, and what things are, are, are healthy and unhealthy. And as they kind of started to communicate this, like I was sitting there and I was listening and I was like, gosh, this is exactly what I feel like is happening. And, um, you know, sometimes they joke that pastors, you know, all they do is read books and stare out windows and think. But, like, I'm grateful for guys like, like Jim and Chris because they're good thinkers. And, 
And here's kind of like what I think that they, they help kind of point out when it comes to these political identities becoming almost religious experiences. Um, this is kind of like civics 101, but I, I, I want to point um, something out. So we're going to start with, like with, with politics, we have kind of the spectrum. Um, we have the right and the left. And, and this is something we probably all know. Like on the left, you have um, kind of like more liberal people. And on the right, you have more conservative people. And so it operates on the spectrum. And you know, in the middle, you might have your moderates. And it seems like, you know, just quick little definitions. If, if you're a liberal thinking person, um, you typically want a stronger centralized government. Um, you, want, you want kind of like more, more government control, trusting government to solve more problems. You, you want uh, more, like a strong centralized government. Um, if you're a conservative person, you typically um, want a weak centralized government. So kind of like less government control, empower the individual, right? And, um, and there's more going on than, than that, but that's kind of the gist of this liberal conservative kind of mindset. And uh, what, what happens is when we have this kind of spectrum of right and left, uh, you, you find that there's not a whole lot of chance for nuance. In the world that we live in, it's super complex. And so you might be like, where do I stand on like, this spectrum? And, and, and how does that play out in this complex world that we're living in? Um, and, and, and it seems like when you go kind of more to the extreme of one, I, I think, like my dad has, has said in the past, it's almost like you get closer to like, the, the, the other side again. Like When you go further out to these extremes, um, they, they tend to look uh, very similar. Um, and so you have this spectrum that's happening on this horizontal plane. So hang with me here. Um, one of the things that I think is happening in our culture is that this isn't the only spectrum um, that's taking place. It's not just this horizontal spectrum. There's actually another thing happening um, that I think is framing our conversations. And it's that there's another spectrum that's actually vertical that goes up. And if you kind of like look at this, this picture, um, it creates kind of like these quadrants. And so. Um, this one is a spectrum that goes from, like, from the bottom to the top. And at the top of this spectrum is this idea of modern or modern thinking people. This would be kind of like the establishment. Um, this would be uh, people who, um, like, you know, scientific method uh, helps us understand truth. Um, people at the top kind of would say, like, we've had like 400 years of like education that has built this structure. And truth is defined by our science. Truth is defined by kind of this, this scientific method. Um, and the establishment is a good thing. The establishment kind of are these pillars in society that keep society going. And then if you look at the bottom of the spectrum, um, the, at the, the bottom of this vertical spectrum, you have kind of this idea of like postmodern or postmodernism, which is kind of like um, more of maybe like an anti-establishment uh, type of thinking. And so, like for the postmodernism, this is like a, a philosophy that um, where where truth is de defined by the scientific method. Um, this is actually very suspicious of of science and the scientific method. Um, postmodern thinking people tend to be more deconstructionist um, in how they uh, approach um, defining truth. Um, they they tend to kind of like subvert like these meta narratives of of how the world works. Um, they and, and for postmodern people. For them, truth is kind of defined by personal experience. And so um, they're kind of more of an anti-establishment um, mindset in, in how they think. For them, um, postmodernism is, is kind of, uh, we can't actually trust you know, the establishment. We can't actually trust the top. And so there's this other spectrum that's happening, not just like horizontally. This is a vertical thing that's happening, where you're a modern thinking 
uh, pro-establishment or a postmodern thinking kind of more anti-establishment uh, a person. So like if you're anti-establishment, you might be more suspicious of, of science and the results. And so I think this is important because we kind of think we identify politically across the horizontal spectrum, but we might have more in common with people across this vertical spectrum than we realize, even depending on that we're right or that we're left. And, and so what it does is it, it creates this quadrant of, of uh, identity that people exist in. And what I've kind of um, come, come to, I think, identify is that depending on where you're at in the spectrum or where you're at in this quadrant, you have kind of values that you think the world becomes a better place with. And every quadrant has a separate value. Jim calls these kind of like ideologies, um, but it's basically my filter, my lens that I see, I think the world becomes better because of this main value uh, that, that it, the whole world becomes better with. So like just how this breaks down, the top right uh, quadrant, or the top right block is kind of like modern conservative people. Their top value, their top kind of ideology of how to make the world as a, better, a better place is the word responsibility. And so for them, uh, personal responsibility, uh, responsibility to your, your family, to yourself, and to your family um, is, is most important. This, you might find like these uh, modern thinking people, this is like Reagan economics, right? God helps those who help themselves. Uh, this is like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, and if we can all be responsible for ourselves and our family, the world becomes a better place. With that responsibility, also, like if I'm taking care of myself and my family, I have a responsibility to my neighbor. I have a this, this shapes our foreign policy. We have a responsibility to, to people who are, on, um, who are weak or on the other side of power, those on the down and out. Um, because of our responsibility, that's how the world becomes better. And so that's kind of like the thinking for everything's viewed through this lens of are we responsible people? We need to be responsible people. You need to be responsible. I need to be responsible. And we, if we're all responsible, it's just going to be a better world. Um, so also, if, we, if you're on the top, modern thinking people, and we moved kind of to the left side, the value that kind of runs everything for this kind of thinking is this idea of progress. Um, so modern kind of liberal thinking people, are we progressing as humans? Uh, for them, knowledge solves all the problems. So more education, um, you know, scientific method, we can solve all the problems that we have just by knowing more. Um, are we evolving as humans? Um, we can trust the science. And so like, it, it, as long as we're progressing, um, we're, we're, we're solving all the problems in the world. The world becomes a better place because of progress. And so um, I am going to throw out a few names. This is probably like where like the Joe Biden thing, um, where, where he fits. Like, what does he keep saying? Well, li listen to me, because I'm going to li or listen to what? The scientists, the experts, right? Both, all modern people think that there's this high value for, like, higher, or there's a value for higher education. Um, but for him, it's, you know, pro are we progressing as a society? So you've got kind of like responsibility and progress. Hang with me. So you drop down to like postmodern thinking people, and we'll start on the left. And so like kind of mo more liberal postmodern thinking people, their top uh, lens, the way they see the world, the value that they see the world through is equality. Um, uh, are we allowing for equal rights? And so for them, they would say things like, we want to take the people that have been at the bottom and have never had the privilege of those at the top, and we want them to have the opportunity. And so like you might, like the late John Lewis, like, you know, 
um, uh, would, would be down here. It's, it's this idea that, that people haven't had the same opportunity as others because of what? The establishment. And so for them, they want to kind of like flip this thing um, so that uh, if everyone can have equal rights and if, if we could get equality, the world's just going to become a better place. You might even put like Bernie down here. Bernie and his bros would be down here. This idea of equality. Equality allows uh, for the world to become a better place. This is the value that everything's being driven through. And then um, anti-establishment conservative people, kind of postmodern. So this would be more of like what I think like Trump's camp right now would be this idea of security. If we can make things safe, if we can make things secure, the world will be a better place. And so this is, you know, build the wall. This is America first. And the idea is safety. If we, if we can create security, the world is going to be better. This top value, everything is viewed through this idea of security. And so when you look at these values or these ideologies, we go back to the map, responsibility, progress, equality, security, essentially those are good things, right? Like we want to be people who have these values and are for these values. Um, and in fact, if you look at these values, even like the Genesis story in creation, um, when humans are inhabiting the garment before the fall, these are all, these are all evident. These are all these, these ways that we think we want to make the world better. And so like, I, 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 we have these conversations about politics, and, and I've heard, like, families who maybe their daughter has decided to, to start voting for the other side, and it's like, you might as well think that they've, like, gone to the dark side of the force, right? Um, and you have conversations with people that you know they're compassionate and loving, but you're like, how could you be, like, voting over there and, like, go, going for all those things? I think it's essentially people have this, this value or ideology that, that they, their lens, the world gets a better place through this lens. And, and, and here's kind of what's happening. And the way this plays out, so, moder like, you might, you might see like, conversations of, of tension happening in our culture. So say like um, last year, you know, Trump pulls the troops out of Syria, um, and what a, a lot of Republicans on the right are actually mad about it, because why? Well, we have a responsibility, is what they would say over there. Like, we're responsible, and Trump's like, no, like, security is the priority, and like, we're pulling them back, and you're like, how are they arguing they're all on the right? Well, because they're on this other spectrum of, of what's important, responsibility or security. Um, with the postmodern thinking people, um, I, I've been trying to, I, I feel like this is the movement in America right now, um, is a lot of this kind of postmodern thinking, and I'm trying to understand, you know, uh, you know, where is this like, coming from, what are they trying to accomplish, and what you'll find is that I, I think with postmodern thinking people, uh, what they're saying is the way that the establishment looks right now, with the science, with the experts, um, it, it's almost like they're operating as like, how medieval priests did, right? Like medieval priests had this truth, but then it was backed by this establishment. And at some point, when you're backed by the establishment, maybe there's um, you're trying to protect yourself on top of it. And so I think like the big postmodern movement is this idea that um, all of this stuff in the in the establishment is backed by um, by the establishment. And so there's suspicion that comes through. Um, and so what happens is we have these values, and we start to get suspicious of people in other quadrants, um, and, and I think here's, here's kind of the trouble of, with it all. Um, each value is essentially a good thing, um, but when the value becomes the ultimate thing, we tend to idolize our position. So um, it, it doesn't mean we don't have a position, but once we start to idolize our position, um, we, we do two things. We idolize our position and then we demonize the position of others. 
And so it doesn't mean that we don't have positions, but we have to be careful that we're not making an idol out of our position and demonizing the position of others. Because we want to be right, we become defensive people. Um, But here's what an idol is. An idol is a good thing that we have made the ultimate thing. When they're, you know, most, most things that we make idols out of, they're, they're good, but then when we make them the ultimate thing, they start to control us. And people get really defensive when you start to when you go after idols. Um, again, this doesn't mean we don't have positions, but what happens when we have idols, we defend them at all costs. Our idols, nothing could ever be wrong with our idol. Nothing could ever be critiqued about our idol. We even make up kind of stories to make sure that our idol um, is perfect. And, and then part of the reason of, of us, def- like, we can defend it by attacking other people and making their idols um, basically d- demons. And so we demonize everyone else. When it comes to idols, there's this interesting um, psalm, Psalm 115. I don't have a slide for it, um, but I think it's, uh, it's important. It says, uh, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases them. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, and they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Uh, feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Like, there's this, this passage about idols. But what's interesting is, like, we live in a, in a modern society where we don't really have, like, little statues of idols. Some people do. But for the most part, I, I would say almost the opposite is happening. We have these idols that are ideologies or ideas. And you could say almost the opposite of the scripture. Uh, the idols are not made by human hands. They don't have mouths, but our idols speak. They don't have eyes, but our idols see. They don't have ears, but they can hear. They don't have noses, but they can smell. They don't have hands and feet, but they can walk. And the truth is, like we, 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 I think out of our misplaced hope, can I have these religious experiences kind of like in our position that we idolize. And that will ultimately leave us in despair and unfulfilled. The second thing that happens is not only do we idolize our position, um, we demonize the position of other people. And, and by the way, this is kind of how this works, like when we, we idolize. Um, so like the left typically will use shame um, in defending its idol. And so like, how dare you? Um, the right will tend to be using fear when it comes to their idol. So fear is the big motivator. Um, we're all going to, you know, we're all going to die. Um, modern idols, uh, for the modern, they, they tend to make idols out of institutions, where postmodern people tend to make idols out of the individual. Um, so that's kind of like how those idols uh, shake out. But then the demonization of other people. Um, and I think this is what's happening. So many times we can't have these conversations because in order to, to win the conversation, we have to attack. And so we go on the attack and we demonize the other person. John Tyson recently wrote a book uh, called The Beautiful Resistance. And he talks about like, the way the world communicates and talks and does politics and then the way that the church is called to do it. And he says this. He says, when the church takes her cues from culture and eliminates, assimilates, dominates, and demonizes image bearers of God, which are humans, she bears no resemblance to Jesus Christ, whose compassion defied all social categories and was defined by a deep embrace. Demonization leads to dehumanization. Demonization leads to dehumanization. 
And right now, this, this political conversation that we're having in our culture, we forget we're all Americans. We're fellow citizens, and we need to have civil conversations where we're not just demonizing the other, we're not just idolizing our own position, but we see the image of God in other people. And one thing John says here, too, is he points us back to Jesus. And here's the, the last piece of this quadrant, is that uh, Jesus kind of, it looks like he's in the center here, right? And so in this quadrant, uh, we have Jesus in the middle. And the thing is, it's not like Jesus is on our plane, though. Keep, keep this slide up. Jesus isn't on the same plane as all of this. What I would say is this is the table of Jesus. And the table of Jesus almost like hovers above all of the quadrants. And what we do is we point people back to Jesus in the midst of all of these conversations that are happening. And when we do that, when we point people back to Jesus, uh, what we find is that when that value is in right relationship with Jesus, it flourishes. And when that value is disconnected from Jesus, I think we have this slide, disconnected from Jesus, um, it leads to destruction and toxicity and ultimately death. And so in the company of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, this ministry of the meal, he invites people to the table. And Jesus would have people come to the table from all sorts of walks of life, whether it's uh, Pharisees or whether it's people of, um, you know, maybe the, uh, the bad reputation. They all come to the table with Jesus. And in relationship with Jesus, he sets right um, our, our relationship with, with, with him, with the world around us. And so when each quadrant, each, each position lives in right relationship with Jesus, it will flourish. At each quadrant was disconnected with Jesus, it leads to kind of this dis- destruction. Um, Colossians chapter 1, when it comes to uh, these different uh, things that we've been talking about. Colossians chapter 1 says this in verse 15. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether powers, thrones, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Think about that. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. The lens that we think that the world becomes a better place in is the lens of Jesus, the lens of the cross. This is the lens, this gospel lens that allows us to have conversations. And the idea isn't that you become a centrist, right? The idea is that your life is centered on Jesus. We're not trying to say you need to move to the center of these, in this quadrant or move from one quadrant to the other. What we're saying is that when you're at the table of Jesus, when you're in right relationship with him, this is how flourishing happens. So when we have these conversations with other people, we're pointing them back to this table of Jesus. The right relationship with Jesus, there's flourishing. Without it, there, it leads to this destruction. 
So hopefully this is kind of a language that we can use as we, as we enter into the next couple of weeks talking about these, this political season. We're, we're viewing everything through the lens of Jesus and the cross. We're pointing people back to the gospel that Jesus is Lord. Uh, a couple of questions as we reflect, um, reflect on these words. Um, I, I think the question we have to ask is what does it look like for a Jesus-centered community during this election season? What does it look like to be a Jesus-centered community during this election season? Is this good news for people? Are we salt and light? Are we able to speak prophetically into situations? Maybe another question is what are the things that I have idolized, that I've placed my hope in, that is misplaced hope? Or maybe you need to say, what are the things that I've demonized where I've taken kind of the image of God of a person and, and, and not thought of them as someone that Jesus can redeem? I've just attacked them and think that maybe they don't have no ability to be redeemed. As followers of Jesus, we're working in this world with our eyes on eternity, and that influences how we live in the here and now. What does it mean for us to be a community of Jesus in this hyper-tense political culture where we can't have civil conversations? Let us be good news. Let us be salt. Let us be light. Let us view everything through the lens of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we're reminded of what your church went through early in its history in the midst of heightened political situations. Lord, we're reminded that our allegiance is to you that you are sovereign, and in the midst of all the uncertainty that we're facing as a culture, that your word endures. In the midst of all the ways that um, we feel attacked and all the ways that we feel like the evil one is at work, we're reminded, Lord, that you ultimately win. And Lord, even as we uh, have strong convictions, Lord, I I ask that our convictions will not be manipulated in ways to become idols, the way that we we view the world, Lord, with these different values that we have, ultimately the lens would be through you, through your cross, through the hope of resurrection, through you conquering sin, through you conquering death, that that would be the lens that all of our political conversations happen. Lord, I pray that we would be a peacemaking people in the midst of uh, just the outrage Lord, that we would be non-anxious presence in the midst of a a culture that is on edge. And Lord, that we uh, would be engaged in this process this fall. Lord, that we would ultimately um, be engaged in a way that reflects who you are. Give us wisdom. Give us creativity. Lord, give us uh, the ability to defuse situations. Let us be a people of hope. And we just ask your blessing on the next couple of weeks, Lord, as we um, continue to just engage. We love you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.